Welcome to Voices United, a congregational song podcast. I'm your host, Benjamin Brody, and I'm delighted in this episode to interview Adam Tice. Adam is a hymn writer and editor at GIA Publications. My interview with Adam took place at Anabaptist Mennonite Theological Seminary in Elkhart, Indiana, in February 2023. Well, welcome, Adam. Thank you for joining the podcast today. I, um, I'd like to start by asking, what are your earliest memories of hymns and congregational singing, and how did your childhood experiences shape your vocation as a hymn writer? So when our family, when I was about three years old, our family moved from Pennsylvania, where we were part of a Mennonite community, to Alabama, where there was not a Mennonite community available. So my earliest memories of worship are in Alabama at a small church that met on the University of Auburn University campus um, in a uh, a Christian church, a Disciples of Christ related congregation um, called Auburn Christian Fellowship that was mostly college students and graduate students, which would have included my dad and maybe four or five kids, including my two brothers and me, so not very many children. But the musical repertoire at that church was almost all guitar-accompanied scripture songs of like the 60s and 70s, and this is into the 80s, so maybe we were getting some cutting-edge early 80s stuff at that point. But things like I Got a River of Life and The Building Block That Was Rejected, um, those were the songs that shaped my early childhood. Songs that were immediately accessible, fun to join in on, and uh, would commit bits of scripture to memory very quickly. That's great. Um, tell us a little bit about your, your faith journey. So my family had roots in the Mennonite world. Um, my dad had grown up in a group called the Beachy Amish, which is, a, the quick way to describe it is Amish plus cars and electricity. Okay. Um, but uh, there's a lot more nuance to it than that. Um, but my ma- dad married a Presbyterian uh, after college, and so that put an end to him being Beachy Amish. Um, and the Amish are related to Mennonites theologically. Um, So as I mentioned, by the time I was along, we were outside of Mennonite communities. Um, I grew up in Alabama and then in Oregon. Uh, In Oregon, we attended a Baptist church and that's where I was baptized in the Willamette River um, by immersion um, when I was 13 years old. So, I grew up with this sort of uh, dual identity, sort of knowing our family's Mennonite-related roots, but growing up outside of those roots and outside of those worship practices. Uh, So it wasn't until college, when I went to Goshen College um, here in Indiana, that I really began to explore what it was to be Mennonite, uh, how those roots connected to my own faith, and brought together those experiences um, of sort of a uh, a Baptist, non-denominational kind of uh, background together with Mennonite commitments to community and peace and justice um, and first became exposed to consistent a cappella singing as well. Um, 
you know, by the late 90s and early 2000s, when I was part of Mennonite communities, it, it certainly wasn't exclusively a cappella singing, um, but that part of worship really did appeal to me whenever we would have the opportunity to break out an a cappella song. Um, so all of those communities sort of fed into my own faith development. During that period when I was in high school and college, even as I started attending Goshen College, um, I was part of a denomination called the Missionary Church, uh, which is sort of Mennonite related, but also more evangelical. Um, and so in that world, I was singing gospel songs and contemporary praise and worship music, um, much more so than hymns. So all of these things were sort of swirling around in my faith development and uh, have helped to shape um, the way I understand faith now. That's great. Tell us about how you first came to write hymns. Well, you and I are talking today on the campus of Anabaptist Mennonite Biblical Seminary, which is my graduate school alma mater. And two doors down from where we're meeting right now is where I wrote my very first hymn. The first class I took was a Congregational Song Practices Past and Present taught by Rebecca Slough, and Rebecca had been the general editor of the 1992 Mennonite Hymnal, Hymnal Worship Book. And one of our assignments for this class was to take no more than 30 minutes to write a psalm paraphrase. And um, I think the 30 minute time limit was designed to keep us from getting too frustrated with the assignment because it was supposed to be pretty hard for us. Um, but I found that it came really naturally to me. I had studied music as an undergrad and always enjoyed writing. And so I had an understanding of rhythm and of meter that enabled me to sort of enter this assignment pretty easily. And so the first text I wrote uh, was one called For You, My God, I Wait, a sort of loose paraphrase of Psalm 130. Um, and realized pretty quickly that there was something to this, that there was something of value in that practice for me. And in fact, that very first hymn is in Psalms for All Seasons, and it's in Glory to God, the Presbyterian hymnal. Um, so after writing that first one, I wrote a few more texts as part of that class. And Rebecca pointed out to me that this might be something new for me, might be a new vocation for me. Um, over the course of maybe six months then after that very first one, I'd written probably 30 more texts wow. and uh, felt like the floodgates were opened. That's great. How did you connect with the Hymn Society then? Did that come kind of quickly after that? or It actually came before that. I, I had majored in music as an undergrad at, at Goshen College and already had a focus on congregational song um, and saw church music as where I wanted to be. And so one of my professors at Goshen, Lee Dengler, had suggested the Hymn Society to me. So I joined, I think the, the first issue I have on my shelves at home is uh, from the fall of 2000. Um, so that's when I first joined and then um, was a member already in seminary. And uh, I wrote that first hymn, I think in the fall of 2003, and then was a Loveless Scholar at the conference in 2004. Okay. Um, so uh, it, it's 
That was the first conference I attended in Collegeville, Minnesota, and the only one I've missed since then was in 2009 when my son was born a few days before the conference started, so <laughs> I couldn't come to that one. That's great. Um, what, what or who has influenced you, and why do you write hymns? In terms of who has influenced me, I'd have to start with Rebecca Slough, who I mentioned um, first got me started. But then um, when I came to my first Hymn Society conference, I had already written a paper about Carl Daw and saw him as somebody I wanted to emulate as a writer and was just starstruck when I got to meet him in person. He was the executive director of the society at that point. Um, and just had a brief chat with him at Collegeville. But then afterwards, he got in touch with me and offered to uh, walk through some of my writing with me to critique and to help me with my hymn writing. Um, and ever since that time has been a, a mentor and grew into a close friend as well. Um, I really admire his writing. Um, Part of what was exciting to me about working with him was that he wasn't turning me into a, a, an imitator of Carl, yeah. but he really helped me to find my own voice. And we, as we would exchange critiques in email, I recognized how his suggestions for my writing were sounding more and more right over time and I realized that he was learning what I sounded like and he was learning what my voice was and he was able to tap into that and make suggestions that uh, would immediately resonate with me. So I really respect that as, as a teacher he found his job to be developing what I was going to sound like. Um, so I, I can't express enough gratitude for what Carl has meant to me as a writer. What process do you follow when writing? That's a really interesting question. I think um, that's varied at, at different stages in my writing life. Early on, when I was a seminary student, it would often be something in a course lecture that would get me going, you know, a, just an offhand phrase from a professor or something like that. And I would start writing uh, and, you know, really kind of miss the rest of the lecture because I'd be writing something, which, you know, some professors that delighted, some less so. Um, and then as I moved into being a pastor after seminary, it would more often be preparation for a sermon that I would want something to follow what I was preaching on, which is a common refrain for preachers slash hymn writers. Um, and so I would uh, write something very rooted in a lectionary passage um, uh, or in whatever other topic I was preaching on um, that would come out of that. Then after I left being a pastor, I recognized that I needed to find some sort of intentionality to get me started writing. And uh, there was a period of time where I would go to the coffee shop in Goshen once a week and almost randomly flip to a psalm or some other scripture of passage and just see if I would come up with something. Mm -hmm. um, and that worked for a good while. Um, 
in terms of the, the process of writing, it would often be working for a while until something struck me as a first line. And it was almost always a first line. Um, I, I know for some writers, the first line comes fairly late in the process, but for me, it would need to come from that. And when I would get to a phrase or I would get to a line, I would have to see where that rhythm would take me and where the pulse of the text would take me, what kind of form would work for what I was writing on. Um, was it so specific a topic that it could only get sung once a year or once every few years? And if so, I would gravitate towards a traditional hymn meter that could be sung to a familiar tune. Um, and so I would discipline myself to an 8686 or 8787 or short meter or whatever it was. Um, if it was something more general or something that could be repeated, then I would often invent a meter that then I would have to go to composers like you to say, what are you going to do with this? And I, I do often find that more exciting to, to see what a composer will come up with. Um, because it creates a unique pairing then that uh, I think gives a different kind of life to both the text and the tune. Do you ever write a text, does anybody ever give you a tune and ask you to write a text to it? Sometimes, and there have certainly been times when that's been invigorating. Um, it, it leads to a fairly different process to me. I think it leads to a kind of writing, for me at least, that's more rooted in feeling than in narrative. Um, so it might, might lend itself to something more sort of emotionally evocative because that's what I get first from the tune. Um, so that, yeah, that's a very interesting process in, in contrast to starting with something that might be scripturally or lectionarily based. Um, and with me, because because as I said in my faith story, I started out with scripture songs. I am rooted and am connected into the idea of everything having some sort of scriptural connection. So I think that's still there. It's just a matter of which comes first, the chicken or the egg. Yeah, yeah. You, you were mentioning the coffee shop and I was trying to remember one of your texts that I think we collaborated on where I wrote the tune. Um, there was some story about it being written on a napkin from the coffee shop, right? I can't remember now what yeah. that was. Yeah, um, it, it's based on a psalm, um, and I, I can't come back to which song it is right now, but the, there was a particular seat in this coffee shop where there was a drawer in the table, and I opened up this drawer and found there were just dozens, maybe hundreds of napkins that had notes written on them. Yeah. You know, whoever happened to sit at this seat would write a little note on the napkin and stick it in this drawer and I was flipping through these and there was a a note on it that said you know if it takes a thousand years I will find you or something like that if we that. live a thousand lifetimes probably. yeah if we live a thousand lifetimes that's the song and it, you know there was something slightly creepy about that <laughs> napkin to me but it it also took me back 
to the song that uh, better is one day in your house than a thousand elsewhere. Um, and so I, I wrote a text based on that, thanks to this napkin in this coffee shop. And yeah, sent that to Ben and got this amazing, wonderful tune out of it. That, you know, and that's one of ours, I feel like not, not enough people have discovered that uh, I hope people will look that one up. I, I think we have a video of it up on uh, GIA uh, on our YouTube page. So you can check check out Ben singing that. <laughs> I, um, I think that could be a great, I was thinking that pile of napkins, that could be a great thing for a hymn writing class and yeah. distribute one to everyone and right. somehow figure out how that prompts a, a hymn of some sort. Yeah. That's great. So Adam, in addition to writing hymns, you recently completed work as the text editor for Voices Together, the new Mennonite hymnal. Can you share a bit about that experience? How did your hymn writing inform that work? And how does it inform your work as an editor at GIA? Yeah, I, it was an amazing and intense and wonderful experience. We had uh, basically four years to make a hymnal, which is not enough time. Um, and we were uh, primarily a volunteer committee. We had uh, uh, our project director, Bradley Kaufman, general editor, was full-time paid staff, and the rest of us were basically volunteers, with a few of us uh, getting small stipends as well um, as editors of the book. Um, and it was um, sort of a what needs to be a marathon compressed into a sprint. Um, and uh, so it was a very intense experience, wonderful, wonderful people to work with, and just holy work the whole way through um holy work and a lot of spreadsheets um which sometimes can go together um it, my work was as text editor for the hymnal and so that involved uh, both searching out new texts and figuring out what would work and what would be needed and what kind of things would we cover in the hymnal but then it also meant uh implementing committee decisions for how would we engage uh, old texts, previously used texts, or texts from our uh, previous hymnal um, and other historical sources. Um, in every hymnal, people have to make decisions about what language gets updated, what language doesn't get updated, do we keep singing these and thous? Do we update those to you and yours? Um, uh, what do we do with gendered language for humanity? What do we do with gendered language for God? Um, and so uh, probably the biggest part of my work was processing committee recommendations that would come from full committee discussion um, saying, you know, this is a hymn that uh, we want to preserve exactly as it is, or this is a hymn that we think we can make small tweaks to, to. and in a few cases, this is a hymn that uh, in order to keep sing people singing it for the next 30 years, it might need some revamping. Um, and so my experience as a hymn writer uh, meant that I could interpret those requests with a poetic sensibility, a theological sensibility, and a musical sensibility. Um, and I worked with a text committee to figure out how to approach those changes. Um, 
And I think the interesting thing about that work is it's never going to be the same for any two denominations. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, denominations really need to do their own work to decide what their linguistic priorities are, how to approach them theologically, what congregations are ready for, what they're not ready for, um, when to challenge and when to comfort um, those are all things that need to be held in balance. Um, I think if our Hymn Society members who are listening, you can check out an article that I co-wrote with Sarah Johnson, who is the worship resources editor for the hymnal that w- appeared in the hymn fairly recently about our, our journey with um, just and inclusive language for the Mennonite hymnal. Thanks. What do you see as the role of hymns or congregational singing in worship? In a practical sense, I feel like congregational singing can do a lot of things. Congregational singing can preach. Congregational singing can facilitate movement. It can enact welcome. It can call us to the table. It can help us to grieve and lament. It can help us to pray and to praise. Um, But in a more general sense, I like to use a metaphor that was uh, introduced to me by Marlene Kropp and Ken Nofziger, who wrote a book called Singing a Mennonite Voice, um, where they suggest that singing, at least for um, sort of ethnic Mennonites, the um, Swiss German or Russian Mennonites residing in North America, um, who have a strong tradition of congregational singing, that singing together is sort of a Mennonite sacrament. It's an enactment of community that uh, transforms us as a people into the body of Christ in a visceral way, that bringing our voices together and our breathing together makes us one and enacts who we are as a body in a very visceral way. Um, So at its root, I think that sort of community formation aspect of congregational singing is really strong for me. What today is most encouraging to you uh, in in congregational singing and worship, what you observe in, in churches? One of the things I get most excited about is the blurring of lines between traditionally entrenched genres. Um, That for people who pick up voices together, they may not have the terminology to look at a page and say, oh, this is a 19th century gospel song, or this is a 17th century hymn text paired with a contemporary organ-based tune, or this is from the contemporary worship music world, that if it's on the page of a hymnal, that makes it a hymn, and that's what we sing together. Um, And I get excited about the blurring of those lines, that there can be a contemporary worship music song that uses a strophic structure like a hymn, that there can be a contemporary hymn that's paired with a tune that would be right at home in a contemporary worship music world. Um, And that there are starting to be more and more collaborations across those lines too of text and tune. And I think it's uh, particularly exciting in the hymn society world seeing, uh, for example, the Center for Congregational Song facilitating those relationships. Um, That's 
what got me most excited about your tunes when I first saw them was uh, a sense that they were rooted in the kind of worship that I experienced outside of the Mennonite world first, um, uh, what I would have termed at that point praise and worship music, um, band-driven things that I would have seen projected on a wall or at a youth conference, the kind of energy of those songs and the kind of embodiedness that I experienced in those songs paired with the kind of texts that I was writing, strophic and um, development of thought across multiple verses. Um, seeing those things come together gets me really energized. What, uh, what most concerns you um, in congregational song today? I think I would have to say teaching and by this I mean the teaching of congregations. Um, even in my own younger years, it was fairly typical for a lot of denominations and a lot of churches to have multiple services every week. You know, in my youth, we were at church on Sunday morning and on Sunday evening and on Wednesday evening. And in all of those settings, we were singing. Um, and so over the course of the week, it was pretty easy to have 12, 15, maybe 20 congregational songs. Yeah, yeah. And for probably the average churchgoer now, there's church on Sunday morning and uh, attendance trends across churches are decreasing. So maybe the average churchgoer is there twice a month, two times a month. And so your weekly diet of congregational song is reduced to maybe four or five, if you're lucky, six songs. And that's not enough to sustain a robust practice of congregational song, whatever genre you're singing. Um, so I worry about the level of repetition available to congregational singers um, because it's not enough to introduce a lot of new material. It's not enough to evolve as congregational song is evolving. Um, so I think there, there is room for those of us who are practitioners to get creative with how we introduce new songs, finding space to do that, um, and being intentional about uh, making sure there's a core repertoire that even the churchgoer who shows up once a month, um, who only sings four songs, that there's going to be something that they're able to latch on to. There's going to be something that engages their memory as well. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, it, um, I think that's a really helpful observation. And it makes me think, you know, for people for whom sort of very recent contemporary worship choruses are more of their diet, even if they only are attending church twice a month, they're often hearing those on the radio as they're driving to work, or you know, they're they're getting that music, uh, hearing that, uh, participating in in some sense with that music in other ways, maybe between Sundays that they're at church and seeing that as a community. Yeah. Um, and we don't have that same kind of culture with, you know, with the variety of things that that many of us sing in our churches. And so there's a maybe an added challenge there to how do we how can we help our parishioners 
um, participate in this music between Sundays yeah. um, when maybe we're not gathering as frequently together. Yeah. What um, what's what was the hardest hymn for you to write that you've written? Hmm. Well, that's another one that relates back to the space we're in today here at uh, Anabaptist Mennonite Biblical Seminary. Um, some of our listeners may know that there was a prominent Mennonite ethicist um, whose name was John Howard Yoder, and I won't mention his name again, um, who taught here at the seminary for many years and then later taught at the University of Notre Dame, um, who, uh, after his death, it was more publicly revealed, left a trail of sexual abuse um, and harm that uh, damaged hundreds and hundreds of people um, and you know, directly victimized many, many people. Um, and the revelation of this abuse in the years following his death um, has had a profound impact, you know, particularly here at the seminary, um, where much of his abuse was perpetrated, and uh, the some of the people who knew about it worked to minimize the impact, and you know he was removed from teaching here at one point. Um, but there was there were institutional failings in its handling. Um, and so a number of years ago, the seminary hosted an event of um, apology and of contrition and lament for institutional failings during that period and in relation to the abuse. And they asked me to write a hymn for that event, um, recognizing that present would be victims of his sexual predation as well as some of his own family members, as well as uh, members of the seminary community who were sometimes both in a position of apologizing and being apologized to. Um, and so the impossible question was, what could they sing together? And so I, I did a fair amount of research and reading about the various processes around uh, his abuse and discipline, um, as well as testimonies of survivors, um, and uh, read about plans for this event in particular. And so it, it was a process of probably a couple of months before I could even begin writing. Um, and what emerged from the writing was a text called In Words of Truth that um, serves as an affirmation of truth-telling and of um, bringing to light painful experiences, basically a, um, a testimony to the perseverance and the power of people who name and call out experiences of abuse um, and who stand up for truth and who call for justice. Um, it was a very painful and powerful text to write, and it went through a, a long process with the committee planning this worship service to make sure that I got it just right. Um, and and it turned out to um, it turned out to speak pretty powerfully. Thanks for sharing.
Adam, if in 100 years only one of your hymns was found in congregational song repertoire, which, which one would you like it to be? You know, of all the questions you sent me, I found this one to be the most impossible. Um, <laughs> it's like, of all your children, which one is your favorite? And I only have one child, so, but I have 250 or so hymns. <laughs> um, I think I would point not so much to one particular hymn, but suggest that it might be one particular category of hymn that's likely to have the longest uh, perseverance. And that's lament. Um, I've found that um, I started writing at a time where lament was, I don't want to say coming into vogue, but um, was becoming more recognized and accepted as an important part of what we do congregationally. And it felt to me to be a natural thing to write. In fact, I mentioned the very first hymn I wrote for you, My God, I Wait, is, is a lament, rooted in a lament psalm. Um, so I've never shied away from writing lament, even though I've personally not been in position of really needing many of them. I, I haven't gone through a lot of the suffering I've had occasion to write about, but I've not shied away from writing things for friends or for communities who I have seen suffering and I've seen in need, need of something to sing. Um, so I've written a fair number of really, really sad songs um, that end up catching on and end up surprising me. So I suspect that if there's something that lasts a hundred years, it might be one of those. It might be sometimes our only song is we weeping. It might be when pain or sorrow. Um, it might be what comfort can our worship bring. Um, one of those that uh, gives voice to deep suffering. Well, Adam, it's been a joy getting to spend this time with you and I'd like to close our time together with five questions that I ask each person I interview. The first is, which hymn has most shaped your faith? I think I'm going to combine your first two questions here on this final five. The second one is, what hymn do you turn to for comfort? So I think I'm going to uh, give multiple hymns here and cheat by giving you three hymns for these two questions. Um, one would be Take My Life and Let It Be, the Francis Ridley Havergal text that I think I probably encountered at that uh, house church in Alabama um, because it can so easily be taught and led from guitar. So it's one that's very deeply rooted um, in my own history and uh, has been sung across the genres. Um, and then I'd add... Uh, be Thou My Vision and Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, which I, I'm sure are on top 10 lists for a whole lot of people who engage in these genres of song. Um, on Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, the, um, the phrase, Lord, I feel it, the way that lines up with the text right then um, just gets me every time. That's great. What's your favorite piece of music? 
Uh, stepping outside the hymn genre, I go to the Rachmaninoff All Night Vigil, the Bogorodizia Devo, uh, the Ave Maria, and that is just one of the most glorious pieces of choral music there is. Do you have a favorite recording? Uh, I don't think so. Uh, I, I have several on my, my own shelves, but more important to me has been the experience of singing that with choirs yeah. rather than listening to it. Yeah, that's great. Uh, what book, other than the Bible, has most shaped your faith or influenced your vocation? Um, a couple of answers here again. I, I like cheating and giving you multiples rather than trying to pick just one. Um, my favorite author from outside of the church world was a, a British science fiction fantasy writer named Terry Pratchett, who died, I think, seven or eight years ago now. Um, who wrote a, a series of 40-some books set on a, a world on a disc that rests on the back of four elements that rest on the back of a giant turtle that swims through space called the Discworld series. Um, and uh, his, his humanity, um, his understanding of human nature... I think has had as profound effect on my understanding of people as any theological book I've read. Uh, within the theological world, uh, a book I read back in seminary was by Leonardo Boff, a Brazilian theologian, called Cry of the Earth, Cry of the Poor. Um, and that's one that has shaped my ecology and my understanding of humanity as well. What hymn would you like to have sung at your funeral? It's another kind of impossible question. Um, and the one I came back to is Isaac Watts, My Shepherd Will Supply My Need, has to be set to resignation. Um, and it's for that phrase at the end, no more a stranger nor a guest, but like a child at home. Thank you, Adam. Thanks. Voices United, a congregational song podcast, is produced by Benjamin Brody with support from the Hymn Society in the United States and Canada and Whitworth University. Special thanks to the Center for Congregational Song for publicity and technical expertise and Whitworth University student Juan Rodriguez for editing and production. 